welcome once again to Father Spritzer's Universe at the busy intersection where faith and reason intersect and sometimes collide. I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here, Mother Angelica <laughs> Way, where it all began, EWTN 1981, thanks to our own Mother Angelica. Your questions are important to us, so email them to us at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, a myriad of them, Magis Center, the Purposeful Universe, spitzercenter.org. And also, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN YouTube channel and our very burgeoning EWTN On Demand page. Our On Demand page has a lot of other great programming you'll want to check out. Some new programs, Springs of Love, Catholic Foster, and Adoption Stories. You could use those today. Inspiring stories of foster families may help you discern if you're called to be a foster parent. And it's all there for free. Did I say for free and on demand 24-7? Go to our website and find out more about it. Our topic as we're kind of winding things down on the Holy Eucharist from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness. We'll continue that today. A uh, new book of the month uh, for May, as we continue on in the month of May, has been Simple Steps to a Stronger Marriage by Dr. Ray Straight Shooter Garendi. So these are simple, but they're <laughs> strong steps you should take for a healthy marriage. Check that out, the one and only Dr. Ray. And speaking of the one and only, we have our own West Coast phenom, uh, Father Robert Spitzer. If you will <laughs> oh, kick us off with a prayer today, that'd be great, Father. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience and staff, so that everything we do will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen and Mary Seat of Wisdom, pray Very for nice. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you're doing well, Father, and I, I know that uh, you're a fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers, <clears throat> so you may be aware yes. <laughs> of, of the wonderful event happening on June 16th when they're having Pride Night. Um, and, and the uh, sisters, yes. uh, you know, uh, those famous uh, religious order out there, uh, the Sisters of Perpetual uh, Indulgence uh, were invited, so, uh, and of course the Catholic League went after it when it, they first were invited, then they got uninvited, then they got invited again. So, uh, so they've uh, not only have the Dodgers now invited the bigoted drag queens who uh, seem it's okay to make fun of Catholic nuns in a most bizarre way, they also apologized to them. And so that's, uh, that's going on. Uh, so. Anybody who's a Dodger fan may want to let the Dodgers know as a Catholic that you're somewhat disappointed, especially think if you thought about what other religion could people dress up and be so absolutely, you know, horrendous towards that religion and still not be seen as bigoted in themselves and being anti-Catholic. Well, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's uh, certainly a mockery for sure, and right. uh, yeah, I am a Dodgers fan, but uh, today not uh, particularly proud of it. So right. um, I'm sorry that they've done that, and I'm sorry they've gone after uh, certainly the women religious right. in uh, in my faith. I'm, right, absolutely. I'm very disappointed. It's it's brought a, tr a new meaning to the word Dodger blue. 
since uh, they used to talk yeah. about in the old days the, yeah. the blue oh, wow. and things that were uh, <laughs> yeah. not so yep. weren't weren't yeah. for general uh, <laughs> consumption, especially by young people. Consumption. Yeah. That's right. So anyway, yeah, exactly. uh, but anybody should be aware that was kind of again <laughs> oh, wow. disappointing, you yeah. know. So uh, yeah, yeah. Another thing uh, coming from uh, and since I was on a roll for the Catholic League, so I'll also pick up this one. This was a story from a couple of weeks ago, which uh, a Washington Post survey on transgender persons came out, and basically the headline from the Catholic League was "Trans persons admit to mental disorders," and it really it talks about the fact that one of the most significant findings in this particular KFF Washington Post survey of transgender persons is not discussed necessarily in the the news story, but if you look inside the data, like you tend to look at it, and, and Bill yeah. Donahue does says that when asked about their childhood, 81% yeah. of all adult surveys said it was either a very happy or somewhat happy. Only 53% of trans people answered the same way. They go on to talk about yeah. how you felt in the last 12th. Lonely, these are people who are trans. Lonely, 21% adults answered. 45% for trans people. Hopeful for, for mm -hmm. the average adult, 29% for trans. Depressed, 22% for the average adult, 48%. Anxious, 31% for the general populace, 56% for trans. And so you can see here that you know, you're dealing with a lot of people who are dealing with a lot of other underlying issues that in a sense are being kind of lived out in a way through the trans movement. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts? Well, oh no, I think like I said, there's a, um, a considerable data um, now that is not only in um, people who were the pioneers in this area that showed that really there is not a biological uh, basis for a man being trapped in a woman's body or a woman being trapped in a man's body. It's coming from a set of anxieties that sort of triple up. Um, some of the anxieties, I believe in the case, uh, you know, it's somewhere between 41 to 60 percent of those young um, uh, 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 people have been abused as children. Um, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 80 percent of the households uh, in which you have uh, those kinds of anxieties. There is very high anxiety uh, on the part of the parents in the household, or at least one of the parents on the household, that's being transferred, right? The child thinks that the anxiety is because of him or her, right. and so that uh, in the child's mind, right, if I could just be the opposite gender, I'd be more satisfying. So you have this kind of um, you know, anxiety that's now kind of transferring into a, a, a wish for another gender. Uh, you have a third um, area of latent homosexual uh, tendencies that, um, so, you know, are trying to be repressed, but when they're combined with the other two anxieties, that, um, uh, you know, brings it out even to the fullest extent. But every one of these things can be therapeutically treated before puberty. So in other words, what are we doing by encouraging uh, kids to have a, um, uh, well, at least gender-affirming therapy, which is getting the hormones, but, uh, you know, with a view toward sexual reassignment surgery. I mean, if you do that, what happens, and, um, you know, several studies show this, the minute you plant that hope in that child's mind, they will skip therapy altogether. They'll never treat the anxieties 
that were there previously, their hope is fixed on the surgery or fixed on looking like the opposite sex, uh, at least from some gender affirming therapy. But then 10 years after the fact, after the surgery, when it doesn't take away the anxieties, you get a quadrupling right. of the anxieties. And once that happens, the suicide rate skyrockets by a factor of 2,000%, 20 times higher. Um, the suicide rate goes up by comparison with the general population. And that's, by the way, in a 30-year Swedish study. Mm. And as I've mentioned before, the big Dutch study, um, the Den Hager study, um, which was done over 50 years, the minute you begin gender-affirming therapy, and we're talking not, not about sexual reassignment surgery here, just getting the hormones and starting the therapy, the mortality rate goes up by a factor of three times for all things, psychological, emotional, physical. It's just not good for you to be getting hormones of the opposite sex. I mean, when you get a tripling of the mortality rate by comparison with the general, general population, it's bad news right there. That should just be like warning signals for the entire medical community. They have the awareness uh, to figure out that this is very, very unhealthy physically and emotionally. But even worse, the same group that did the study, the Den Hager group that did the study and publishes in the Lancet, by the way, a very, very prestigious uh, journal, when you um, actually try to lower that over a 50-year period, they tried to um, lower the mortality rate, couldn't lower it a smidge. Mm -hmm. They just couldn't lower it at all over a 50-year period. There's something intrinsic to putting these hormones in a person's body. In fact, it's so, uh, you know, right now the data is so overwhelming mm -hmm. about how unhealthy this is that um, it's, uh, I mean, Sweden, now Finland has come on board, and of course we know about um, Great Britain. All three of these countries have shifted their policies on transgender um, medicine altogether, saying that um, the risks far outweigh the benefits. Now that's uh, the, the, a quote from the recent Finland um, you know, a statement that was right. made when their government again shifted, but it's having a cascading effect. It's good. I mean, once you've got these very, these countries who have been, like Great Britain, Sweden, and Finland have been leading the pack for a long time. They've got a lot of data that other um, countries don't have. We do have the data, but we choose to ignore it because of political um, uh, dimensions. Right. But the fact is, eventually, we're going to have to reconcile. I mean, that Den Hager study just stands mm -hmm. out and, and is just saying, you know, hey, you know, this, this, there's something wrong here. Right. This is, uh, you, know, right. you, you know, this cannot be a good procedure. And right. certainly to say this to a pre-adolescent, get their hopes up that they're going to have a quick fix to all their anxieties, which, of course, they'll get a quick fix right. because, of course, there's, you know, a, almost, a, you know, a, an effect of relief, you know, that comes comes uh, the minute you get the surgery, but it's like five years, ten years later, mm -hmm. then the anxieties, yeah. you know, doubling, tripling, quadrupling into suicide. Right. Um, not just the suicidal ideation, but suicides well, themselves. Well, it's, so it's, I think the data yeah. that you're seeing. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. 
you know, reinforces that. But to quote, again, an old boss of mine who said, let's not let the facts get in the way of what we want to do here, right? That idea that we have this dictatorship of relativism, as our late great Pope had said, with the idea that, you know, people are just deciding on their own, regardless of what the facts are, it doesn't matter, this is how I feel about it. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, strength of feelings cannot be the basis on which to, you know, to, to move a social policy into being that is going to harm huge numbers in the population. Right. And, of course, once the harm is done, the exit, you, you really can't get an exit out of it because you can't reverse once you've had the sexual reassignment right. surgery, you can reverse to some extent with uh, if you've been receiving hormones without right. sexual reassignment surgery. But um, but uh, once you've had the surgery, you can't reverse, right. and that's why the suicide rate is so high. I mean, you might just call it buyer's remorse right. is almost inevitable after 10 years. And uh, so the Washington Post data, oh, it's just it's commensurate with everything we've been seeing from these really major studies in Sweden and in Holland and in Great Britain. Right. The thing that's amazing in some ways is if you, if you go to the numbers and say that uh, even at the high side, I think it's uh, six-tenths of one percent or something who at least claim at some level in the transgender. But yet you would think that it's 10% of the population or the way you see programs geared towards it, uh, displays in major department stores, uh, you know, beer companies coming out with these things that, you know, it just seems to be, mm -hmm. uh, they're totally misreading their audience, but it, it does let you think that these people really do live in some sort of post-academic elitist bubble. Well, that, there's a yes, but I mean, I think that the, the difficulty is, even though it's less than one percent, in fact, it's almost one half of one percent are leaning in that direction in the general population. That's true. And, you know, but I think the attempt here is to be affirming mm -hmm. and nice and trying to be you know, um, respecting people's feelings. But, you know, it's one thing to respect fe people's feelings, which I think you ought to do. I mean, right. I remember my dear mother, you know, I, I didn't invite a, a girl to my birthday party once, and my mother said, well, how come you didn't invite her? I said, well, I just didn't want her to come. Well, she has feelings, too. Right. Oh, maybe she does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, you know, I, I can see that very clearly, you know, um, you know, in, in retrospect, I see that feelings should be respected right. but on the other hand you don't respect people's feelings and then just trash their whole future trash their future health trash their uh, future emotional health trash their uh, uh, future physical health I mean you, you just can't do that I mean right. th this is like uh, you know uh, you know we've prized feelings you know way above reality being actualization we've gone absolutely crazy and of of course, the idea is, I guess, some sort of autonomous notion of freedom. People ought to be able mm -hmm. to do what they want. But want re is not what Aristotle would have called rational desire. Want right now is my strongest feeling now. Mm -hmm. And of course, a pre-adolescent telling that pre-adolescent, 
go ahead and get the surgery. That, you know, you've got a half-developed frontal lobe, which mm. does the judgment. You've got a person who's desperate to get out of their anxieties. You give them the instant fix solution. I mean, it's like the right. false, you know, you know, fairy godmother promise. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you just can't do this to people. It's not ethical. It's certainly not medically ethical. Yeah. It, it really, Great Britain, Finland, and Sweden are right. You got to stop it. It's wrong on every level. And we made a mistake. We got to own up to it and yeah. reverse it. I mean, you know, trying to jump on the, the bandwagon and make people feel good. Well, right. uh, you know, good, make people feel good, but not at the expense of their physical, emotional uh, health. And certainly in the case of right. uh, when you've got, you know, a large percentage of that population, upwards of 30% feeling, uh, uh, one right. uh, intending to commit suicide. Hey, what are we talking right. about here? Well, I mean, this is, uh, well, it's like this dealing is crazy. With people, you know? right. It's like dealing with people yeah. who, let's say, uh, have a drug addiction or a problem. Many of them are running around in the streets, have other mental issues that if you could deal with the mental issues that they had behind them, maybe you could get them off the drugs. But our answer is, yeah. is uh, well, just give them enough drugs so they don't bother give anybody else, you know? Yeah, yep. Yeah. Same idea. Yeah, let, no, it's... Let me yeah, ask you. I get, <laughs> right? Like I said, wow. Right. Chesterton would have many good things to say right. about that. Right. Anyway, I'll leave it at yeah, that. Absolutely. So uh, the Catholic World Report, uh, I wanted to ask you, this, this has been in the news a lot over the last month, and and your intellectual scientific background. Former Google scientist warns about the dangers of artificial intelligence. So I was just wondering to, to ask you just to, what are your thoughts about artificial intelligence at the level it is today, your knowledge about it, and, and what your thoughts are on what we should be concerned about? Well, first, I don't have a kind of a Stephen Hawking problem with artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. I do not believe that um, any kind of self-consciousness like we have, right? I'm aware of my finger, and I'm also aware that I'm aware of my finger. So I'm aware of my awareness, that mm -hmm. interior world that I have that enables me to have this inner subjectivity. And that inner subjectivity, of course, is my private world over against the outer public world. Mm -hmm. That, to me, that kind of self-consciousness, I think um, David Chalmers uh, at Oxford there, he has an analytical proof that you cannot reduce that kind of consciousness merely to physical processes. And you have a variety of other really good um, uh, philosophical arguments as, and uh, physical arguments as well that self-consciousness probably will not be able to be replicated by a physical process. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that begins actually with our tradition, St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas had, um, you know, responding to Aristotle's De Anima, uh, had some pretty good arguments mm -hmm. for the immateriality of self-consciousness. But what I'm trying to say is, if you can't have an interior space, a privacy where you are kind of aware of being aware of your awareness, where you can have that inner inner subjectivity, that private world. There's no way you're going to get a set of desires oriented around egocentricity. Mm -hmm. So you might have seen that movie a long time ago, uh, you know, 2001 A Space 
Odyssey, mm -hmm. where this computer Hal, Hal uh, yeah. suddenly develops self-consciousness. Yeah, and uh, he suddenly says, "You know, Dave, I don't like you that much. Uh, you know, I think I got to shut down the old uh, ship here, and you know, I think uh, you're going to have to come under my control, and mm -hmm. so forth and so on." That's an, I do not believe that will happen because mm -hmm. we still have to operate uh, in a physical world. We have no way of actually giving a soul, and that's what I mean by immateriality of self-consciousness. We can't give a soul to a computer, so I'm not really worried that suddenly one day computers are going to get self-conscious. Okay. I don't think either, you know, that um, uh, computers are going to become uh, rationally conceptual. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, there's two kinds of concepts. You can have what's called uh, perceptual ideas and conceptual ideas. Perceptual ideas are when you say, oh, uh, here's an image of a banana, and here's the sign language for banana. And so I get to my really highly trained chimp like Nim Chimsky, and I tell him again and again and again and again, banana, banana. You know, and I give him the sign, and I give him the banana, and finally he gets it. And you know, you can actually train Nim Chimsky to learn uh, 120 words in American Sign Language. Well, that's a really great thing. But every one of those things is perceptual ideas, which means that they really have no abstract concept. It's a one-to-one -one correlation, and the one-to-one -one correlation is image-to-image -image correlation. Mm -hmm. A concept is a category that can stand for a whole range of objects, and it can be used without any images whatsoever in its kind of ranging abstract conceptuality. It can, st it can be used in logic, it can be used even in mathematics, right? And you know, images would just conflict with each other, but mm -hmm. concepts don't. Now here's the deal, once you get one conceptual idea, just one conceptual idea, you have got a predicate or a direct object. Mm -hmm. You can actually use a word predicatively or as an object in a sentence. Now here's the problem with Nim Chimsky. Even though you can give Nim 120 words, and some people say even 150 words, wow, in perceptual ideas in American Sign Language, Nim Chimsky can't do one syntactical move. Nim can't tell the difference between dog bites man and man bites dog. Mm -hmm. The very kind of, you know, little pun that will make a two-year-old chortle, mm -hmm. the idea of the man biting the dog, right? Uh, Nim doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no way he has any awareness of syntax because he has no mm -hmm. awareness of predicates or direct objects. All he knows is one-to-one -one image correlations, and therefore, poor Nim, despite, even if we give him 200 words in American Sign Language, he'll never be able to use one predicative or one a direct object or indirect object sentence. Not a single one. In other words, Nim can't do abstract thinking, and he can't use abstract language to reflect right. his abstract thinking. Now, there have been, I mean, there's really good studies that have been uh, done on this, uh, including, uh, by the way, Noam Chomsky, uh, who is uh, um, right. uh, you know, a very good linguist, and he, along with Robert Berwick, um, uh, just published, well, it was not just, but it was like five years ago, mm -hmm. published a book at MIT Press called Why Only Us?
And they had this very telling little paragraph uh, toward the end mm -hmm. where they've gotten, you know, they, they've looked at the language process and they see the difference right between um, uh, what's called uh, ape or uh, chimp language, uh, as I said, which is instinctual and one to one correlation of perceptual ideas. Mm -hmm. And they are trying to explain what is it about you know, human language that is able to get that abstract quality that gives us predication, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so they've gotten right down to the paragraph and they go, well, we think that there must be something like atomic, like little atomic um, nuclei of um, uh, concepts mm -hmm. that humans have uh, in their brains. And they go, we don't know how to, um, you know, uh, you know, you know, put this into mm -hmm. physical processes or physical structures, but there have been some of these ancient philosophers, you know, <laughs> Plato or Thales, mm -hmm. that really did this. And then Kant and Hegel, you know, were interested in this. And that's true. All mm -hmm. those philosophers have been enamored of it. And needless to say, Aristotle was definitely uh, worried about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, um, uh, definitely St. Thomas Aquinas was very worried about it. And a variety of, like Bernard Lonergan, et cetera, mm -hmm. in the modern age have been very worried about it. But that is the problem. Mm -hmm. It's always been the problem. If we're gonna make, enable, you know, um, artificial intelligence to really replicate human intelligence, to have it be creative, we've gotta give it a concept, mm -hmm. an abstract concept that can be used in predication or in a sentence with a direct or indirect object. We have to give them some means of doing abstraction. And we can't because abstract concepts have no pure physical correlates. Mm -hmm. This is the problem. It's always been the problem. And of course, if um, I know I'm getting a little abstract here, but I have no difficulty thinking for a single moment when I see the how, I'll believe it. Mm -hmm. But I got to tell you, right. I don't believe it. I don't think it'll ever happen. I don't think concepts can be reduced to physical processes and structures. Mm -hmm. And I do not think self-consciousness can be reduced to physical process and structures. Right. And therefore, I don't think you're going to get a how. On the other hand, I do think that there are real difficulties with things like chat GPT. Mm -hmm. And of course, the good side of ChatGPT is, wow, can you do a lot of really intelligent, quote unquote, intelligent. Mm -hmm. It's not abstract intelligence. It's putting, it's what we call synthetic uh, com uh, combination kinds of uh, what looks to be intelligence mm -hmm. and creative, but is not creative and intelligent. It's merely synthesis according to specific programmings and random uh, methods of combining things according to certain algorithms. Now those things, uh, you know, I mean, they're going to really simplify life. They're going to make research fantastic and things of that nature. But mm -hmm. there's two problems with chat GPT in my view. The, the short term problem with chat uh, GPT is that um, you're going to get mistakes mm -hmm. uh, because, of course, there's not a real focused intentionality behind the synthesis. If some kinds of problems exceed the um, algorithms for uh, synthesizing that information and data, then uh, honestly, you could get some really 
terrible, mm. disastrous mistakes, and somebody could actually get blamed for it because you know the footnotes would be in there, and it would look like you know um, a, you know a conclusion gets drawn uh, for which there is no actual basis in fact, or conclusion gets drawn and attributed mm. to Joe Blow, and Joe Blow had nothing to do with it. It was kind of like it got uh, beyond the algorithm mm -hmm. um, to to stay within its its uh, controlling parameters, and so the the main thing, of course, is is you've got a problem there, and the mistakes could be a downfall. It's like mm -hmm. you know you say, well, you know, ChatGPT to me is like uh, one of those self-driving programs, right? You you know you get into a car, and you know mm -hmm. blind people are always interested in those things, mm -hmm. but do I really trust it completely? Mm -hmm. You know, like I would trust a human driver who has real judgment. Uh -uh. Because, of course, one little mistake, one little problem in the programming, mm -hmm. one little problem, you know, in the uh, electrical system, blah, 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 and kablamo, um, you know, and it's not just me that gets it, it's the other driver. Right, but it's right. the same thing, I think, of the mistake problem. The long-term problem with ChatGPT is we cease to develop our capacity for concentration, fixed reflection, and creativity. Mm -hmm. I think if we've got ChatGPT doing all this stuff for us, I remember I had a student once, he says, ah, oh, you know, you marked up my whole paper. He says, I don't care about that. When I get into business, I'm just gonna have a secretary do it for me. Mm -hmm. I said, you're just forgetting one fact, that uh, if you can't write, it means you can't think. Right. And so, of course, at the end of the day, bad writers are bad thinkers, and your secretary will never be right. able to make it up for you. And he, he kind of looks at me, but it's the same problem. If we lose, if we begin to get utterly dependent on chat GPT, and we don't in the formative years, that's the collegiate year, well, high school too, high school, college, graduate school, we're not being genuinely creative, we're doing the old chat GPT solution, eventually you lose, first of all, the ability for fixed concentration on a single problem. That's bad, right? You're constantly distracted by all the stuff that's coming in and all the stuff that's new and things like that, but you're not concentrating on the problem you need to deal with. Secondly, you're turning off the human capacity for what we call analogical imagination. Analogical imagination is a very interesting thing that humans do that computers do not do. They serendipitously see relationships among things that are vastly different from one another. It's like, you know, old Archimedes. He goes over to the baths of Syracuse, but the king of Syracuse has given him the problem. You know, Archimedes, this guy gave me a crown and he calls it pure gold and I need you to figure out whether it's gold. And Archimedes goes, no problem. Just melt it down and put it into a sphere. I can measure the diameter, the circumference of the sphere. I can tell you whether it's gold in two seconds. He goes, no, no melting. So Archimedes goes, okay, well, you know, I'll think about this. So he's going down, of course, you know, the old story goes to the baths of Syracuse in a completely unrelated situation. As he's going down into the bath, he sees the water rising on the level. And he goes, oh, my gosh, level water displacement. That's the way of finding out the volume of something, uh, you know, without actually having to melt it or do something like that. And so, of course, he comes up with, of course, the, the, the idea of the displacement method for volume. Now, you look at that 
instance of serendipity, that instance of insight, where two completely, you know, sinking into the bath versus, uh, you know, finding the volume of a crown, that's what humans do. And right. that, that's so right. far beyond the pale of, of, you know, algorithmically finite structures that, that, you know, basically at the end of the day, I just think if we lose that capacity, right. we will become uncivilized because the very thing which has led to every one of our innovations in, um, you know, uh, technology right. over the last several, e well, centuries, right. all of them, uh, you know, not all of them, but okay. the vast majority of them have been very right. serendipitous. Absolutely. Well, the computer that's running this program just told us we need to take a, take a break, so we're going to have to take a break and <laughs> yeah, find out more exactly. about what old Archimedes was talking about when you stay with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe. We'll be right back. Thanks. And we are appreciative that you stayed with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe. Topic on the Holy Eucharist. We'll get to that momentarily. But first, we want to get back to Father, get a couple of questions you sent in to us because we just had some great information and input on AI, which is uh, certainly an, a topic that a lot of people have been concerned about recently. So here's another story that kind of concerns a lot of things we've been talking about, you've been talking about. For Dear Father Spitzer, the U.S. Surgeon General last week echoed your concerns about our society's erosion of happiness due to what his new report called our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. A little, little late to the game, but this is good. Catholic parishes have long mm -hmm. been among the best models of community to improve people's secular and spiritual lives. Are there things that our parishes can do today to become better centers of life and connectedness for their whole surrounding communities while evangel evangelizing at the same time, and this is from Bill. Yeah, Bill, I think you're right on the marker. I think uh, we can even do a better job. I think parishes are uh, have been trying more and more to reach out uh, to um, get people, you know, after mass to come and connect. You know, mm -hmm. coffee and donuts is like the, the the middle name of Catholics, right? I mean, after mass, we we just do it very naturally, and uh, we go and connect with people. All you know, people of course have family obligations and things after mass as well. But a lot of people stick around and they do um, socialize with their fellow parishioners. It helps immensely and it helps form community even mm -hmm. for the youngsters. Because sometimes you think, well, I gotta get these kids back home. But actually, it's good to have a community for the kids mm -hmm. um, at the mass, and you know, you bring them to the coffee and donuts, and they're associating with the other kids that are down there. It's a very good thing indeed, and it's not just the community, um, you know, in the mm -hmm. in the church that's very good uh, for you uh, right. emotionally, but also in terms of emotional health, uh, you can uh, see pretty clearly that um, uh, going to church. Um, really does it just itself uh, irrespective of the mm -hmm. community having some kind of a relationship with God even if it's just 
you know, going into that church building and just eking out five minutes of prayer in a one-hour church service and listening to the gospel or the homily just a little bit, that contact with God, that even small contact mm -hmm. with God enhances emotional health to the point where you can actually see that those who are religiously affiliated, and that means not just that they're, they claim to be a Catholic, but that they actually mm -hmm. go to a church service or something uh, every once in a while anyway, that those people who um, are religiously affiliated have much, much, we're talking about um, you know, a doubling or a tripling less. Or if you put it the other way around, those who are non-religiously affiliated have a doubling or tripling of depression, anxiety, um, substance abuse, antisocial right. aggressivity, familial tensions, suicides, and suicidal ideation. So this basically is occurring uh, on the simple basis mm -hmm. of religious affiliation alone, uh, going to some church services really enhances the person's well-being. Now, I'm sure community is a part of it, mm -hmm. but that connection with the transcendent, that connection with some source of ultimate meaning and hope, that connection right. with something that has been with us from the very beginning that uh, Rudolf Otto would have called numinous consciousness, that sense of mystery and holiness and, and a sense of you know unity and purpose that is quite beyond myself, quite transcendent transcendent or transcendental, that sense, uh, you know, they call pre-thematic sense mm -hmm. of, of uh, God's presence within us, when we just cast it off and ignore it, the anxiety level goes way up, and so does the depression level, and so also suicides, etc. Whereas, uh, the, by the way, this is the 2004 uh, Kanita Dervik um, study for the American Psychiatric Association. Mm -hmm. So you can see, it's a very lengthy survey. It has about 20 authors on it. It's a very good uh, survey. But if you look at that, you can see right. that um, the um, a religion right. alone has this Absolutely. huge effect. And then the community, if you compound the religious community with it, and then compound the fact that you get these friends that are beyond the coffee and donuts, right. they become your friends, you know, at the Catholic school or at, you know, friends who you, you invite out to a dinner, you know, or something, you know, in your life. Right. They just mutually reinforce. And so, yeah, you do get a much happier person. Uh, and a much happier person um, if they continue that religious right. belief over the over the course of a lifetime. Right, and that faith perspective transcends the the, the normal friendship. There's a, a deeper friendship and relationship yeah. in, in many ways. The one question that I just yeah. wanted to get to before we moved off this topic is, what's your favorite donut? <laughs> I just like the pure glazed donuts, okay, honestly. Okay, uh, okay. Around here in California, we have these things called Krispy Kremes. Probably oh, okay. shouldn't say a product on it. But, we but we I have do them here, them. too. Right, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I'm a New Yorker, so we're a Dunkin' Donuts people, but that's okay. I'll mention that, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so here's, here's another question. Dear Father Spitzer, we will celebrate the Feast of Pentecost on Sunday, the day in which Apostles and others yes. received the Holy Spirit. How does this differ from Easter evening when Jesus breathed on the apostles saying, receive the Holy Spirit? Was this just a promise on the part of Jesus of the coming of the Spirit, or did he receive the Holy Spirit twice? This is from Norm. 
Uh, Nora, they actually, it, uh, you, oh, they only receive the Holy Spirit once. John collapses in the Gospel of John uh, that you're uh, citing there, uh, right at the very end. John collapses uh, the resurrection event with uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that he does that is because he doesn't have anything post-factum, that is to say, after um, Jesus's um, uh, resurrection and ascension, he has nothing in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you'll notice that Jesus tells his apostles, "I'm ascending." Right? You know, pr- prior to his gift of the Holy Spirit, he's he's already saying that he, you know he's in that process of ascending. So you can see that John has collapsed the post-ascension and the pre-ascension into one narrative because he doesn't have an Acts of the Apostles, whereas with Luke. Luke does have a post-ascension narrative, a huge one, uh, called the Acts of the Apostles. And so at the very beginning of it, you can see that um, he recounts the ascension again, and then he brings up the, um, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But um, John definitely is talking about the same gift of the Holy Spirit, but he's doing it in a Johannine way. Uh, he's just trying to, to collapse it into his pre ascension narrative, but he is not going to, he can't let it go, right? Mm -hmm. Just because he's not writing an Acts of the Apostles, he has to put it in there, and he has to put it in there. Notice that Hmm. when he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit, the first power that is given of the Holy Spirit is that sacramental power to forgive sins Hmm. uh, to the Apostles. And so already the spiritual charisms uh, from the Holy Spirit are um, given right away. But no, it's an actual okay. collapsing of the narrative, but it's the same event that Luke fleshes out in his post-ascension narrative okay. in the Acts of the Apostles. Well, very good, and before we get to our topic having to do with the Eucharist and Eucharistic devotion, one last question. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, mm-hmm. I love to pray novenas and regularly pray them before feast days or big events. A friend who is also Catholic mm-hmm. says, I should not be doing this because it is an example of repetitious prayer and is superstitious. How is making a novena any different than praying for some petition or to a saint on a regular basis? And this is Ellie. Well, Ellie, uh, the leaping non sequitur of the year is that repetitious prayer is superstitious prayer. Oh, good point. I, mean, I don't know how you get that. I mean, hello, you know, where, you know, where, where's the causal link here? I mean, so that's the first problem. Uh, so the, the second problem, of course, is prescinding from superstition. Uh, some people do get huge benefits from repetitious prayers. And one of them is me, because I am not a person who is perfectly fixed and concentrated when I say my prayer. When I say my rosary, that's another repetitious prayer, which I consider decidedly not superstitious. Mm. When I say my rosary, I do try to, you know, concentrate on the words in the rosary, and I talk to Mary about what's happening to her son or what's happening to her, uh, you know, in the mysteries. So I, I, I'm not just a purely imaginative person, can't do that. But mm. what I can do is I can say, okay, like today, you know, you're doing um, the resurrection, for example, the first uh, glorious mystery. Mm-hmm. And so as you're going through that, I just talk to her about oh, what it was like. And then I talk to Jesus and I just say, you know, uh, what this resurrection would have been like. And, you know, I thank him for sharing the glory of that resurrection with the likes of me or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I am saying those prayers and they just sound like they're rolling off and they mean nothing. 
but they really are connecting you. Those divine names are connecting you, and uh, Mary's name is connecting you to the Mary who is present, mm -hmm. the, the Jesus who is present, the Father who is present. And so the idea uh, for me is I think that the repetitious prayers do the connecting to the present uh, Jesus or Mary. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you, you know, you have these mysteries where you can just, once you're connected with Mary, you can discuss them with her or you can discuss mm -hmm. uh, the, the mystery with Jesus. And I, I do that especially. Mm -hmm. I thank the Lord when I go through the sorrowful mysteries because of that. But the same thing with novenas. Novenas are a chance to, you know, um, uh, in, 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 the, um, in the church, you know, when you're talking about the early church fathers, many of them were Eastern church fathers. And of course, that idea of, you know, going around a thing and kind of doing it from different angles again and again is, a, you know, it's very contemplative. It brings you into the mystery, the mm -hmm. mysterium, right? And, and once you're in there, there is a palpable sense of holiness, mm -hmm. you know, that you, you know, you're taking that mystery in God's presence, again, from a slightly different angle, right? It's not a pure repetition. It's from, it's on another day with a different angle, perhaps with a different reading. And as you're going through that, of course, you are getting, you know, more and more contemplative. More and more you get that sense of the mystical body. You get that sense of the holiness of the church throughout the ages. You're entering into the mystery. And that's a very good thing. And so I, I think, you know, some people have a greater tolerance than others. I know some people, I mean, myself, I get a great deal of, um, you know, uh, uh, entry into the mystery from the chaplet of mm -hmm. divine mercy. I have friends who just say, can't do it, you know, um, too repetitious. And I tell them, don't force yourself. Mm -hmm. Ignatius, St. Ignatius of Loyola mm -hmm. has the best method, tantum quantum. Insofar as this technique is useful, then use it. If it's not useful, don't use it. You know, go to another form that helps you to enter into the mystery. Maybe you would prefer to do the Magnificat or the the the, uh, the breviary or something of that nature. Or maybe you would like to reflect with Lexio Divina on the readings for the day. Uh, maybe you could you'd like to take a variety of prayers. Like you could right. take that Notre Dame prayer book for students, which I think has a lot of excellent prayers, or some of the EWTN prayer books, and just go through a variety of prayers. Some of those traditional prayers of Saint Benedict, right. Saint Thomas Aquinas, uh, St. Ignatius, they're such great prayers. Uh, sometimes they're lengthy, and that's good because there's so much that's teased out in them. But whatever method you take, the idea is you want to follow the graces to connect more deeply with God so that at the end of the day, as you're connecting with the Lord, you've got some kind of dialogue going with them. And the great part for me about rosaries and novenas is that I can dialogue with God even as I'm praying right. those Hail Marys and, you know, going through the mysteries. I'm talking to them 
to Mary and to Jesus about the very things that they underwent. Right. So all of those things are great ways okay. of doing it. And yes, of course, that's the logical error of the century is to suppose that repetition is superstition. Maybe it rhymes, but not much and else. There you go. There you it go. certainly is a Probably non not. sequitur. Maybe it was in a rap song or something somebody picked up from it. Yeah, so, maybe so. As, as we move into, in our last uh, few minutes here, we've got about nine minutes or so. Uh, speaking of great oh, prayers, okay. of course, the greatest been... prayer is really the Mass. Yeah. And talking about the Eucharist, yep. you, you talk about here that there can be no greater prayer, no greater grace, no greater transformative power, no greater path to salvation than the faithful reception of the Eucharist, in which we focus intently on the real presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in His crucified, risen, and mystical body, right? Right. And so, you know, I... Uh... I, you know, some, in order to get you to focus on that, there are very, you know, there are different methods uh, that you can use, but it sometimes is hard because we're, very, like, we live in a society, as I was just saying, where we're so distracted by content constantly coming in on the old smartphone or whatever, mm. and and so you're you're constantly looking for a stimulus. You hear the ping, you, whatever, and <laughs> right. you know, like a Pavlovian dog. I got to respond right this second, That's you know. Right. And and so it's like we we get the flutter of data going through our heads, and so sometimes just to concentrate. Who is this? Well, this is our Lord, uh, and you know. So sometimes I recommend to people, you know, using those Eucharistic miracles, because when you use, uh, like for example, um, by the way, there's those three scientifically investigated Eucharistic miracles I've talked about before, from uh, Tixla, Mexico, Sokolka, Poland, and Buenos Aires, Argentina. When you look at those three, the scientific investigation of those miracles, mm -hmm. it really gets you. And I've had many people come up to me and tell me, including a priest, mm -hmm. I've never, after hearing about these miracles and looking into them myself, I've never looked at the Eucharist in the same way again. I really do, you know, sense it. So that's one possible thing. Another thing is those sacred heart pictures, mm -hmm. you know, I just remember once when I was, uh, uh, you know, at the Bergmannskolleg uh, in, in Germany, um, and I was uh, doing some courses there. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember I, I always had in my breviary, I had this picture of the Sacred Heart um, that um, I had there, and I lost it, unfortunately, mm -hmm. somewhere in Africa, I think. But anyway, the point is that um, uh, I was looking at that picture of the Sacred Heart, and as I was doing my breviary, I just thought, oh, um, this is the Eucharist. And you know that blazing heart in the middle of the mm -hmm. painting that had the thorns on it and the fire uh, oh. coming out of it, you know. And I just looked at that and I just thought, oh, uh, that's the love that's exuding from uh, the Holy Eucharist. Right. That's the the real heart. And come to find right. out in the Eucharistic miracles that right <laughs> that this is not just something arbitrary, but I mean. That's real heart tissue right, growing right. out. That's interesting. At right. Really, real living heart tissue growing out of the substance of the host. And by the way, it is so refined. It's on the, the level of the thin filaments and the myofibrils. And you look at that, you, you know, a few micron separation. No technology, no human technology could possibly reproduce it. And you look at that and you say, wow, 
heart tissue. It's a wounded heart, by the way. All three miracles show, you know, the kind of segmentation that would be there or the kinds of leukocytes or white blood cells, macrophages that are already performing healing activities like phagocytizing lipids, things of that nature. You can see it's a wounded heart. And just like that heart on the sacred heart picture, you know, with the, the, the thorns on it, etc. Hmm. And you, you look at that and there is, as you, you know, what's intended in the sacred heart is that love is blasting off the picture, hmm. right? And I saw that love blasting off the picture. And as I was sitting there look, doing my breviary, I just thought, oh, that's the Eucharist. Wow. And that image, when I receive the Eucharist to this day, the, that sacred heart picture, the heart in that sacred heart picture, with the look of Jesus, the look of utter compassion on the face of Jesus, that double kind of image comes right into wow. my head. And now it combines, you know, with the Eucharistic miracle, you know, the realization of what is really present there in his body and blood. And I, by his intention, wow. right, by his will, it is done. And so I just look at that and I just think, wow, there's something there uh, which really enhances my belief and those little things like it, we live in a culture of images mm -hmm. and so I would recommend those those image factors you know like a sacred heart picture or mm -hmm. a uh, you know like a um, uh, you know, Eucharistic host that's one of those mir miraculous hosts with the, uh, the heart tissue growing out of it. Mm -hmm. Something like that to really enhance, you know, because the image can flash a billion words into your head at once. You don't have to do a Spitzerian articulation in a bloviated book. You can just basically uh, get the um, uh, image and all of it, you know, the subconscious meaning of it and the love that is there mm -hmm. as well as the real presence of Jesus. And for me, the eyes are the windows to the soul. So, you know, in those eyes, I can definitely mm -hmm. see uh, the compassion and the love as well as his personal presence and it is his personal presence that is there right. which is transforming me and all that stuff it's like it channels right into my subconscious mm. mind and it really even though I am easily distracted like many in the culture <laughs> I can tell you that as I receive it even if it's just that subconscious two-second awareness mm. you know that oh my gosh this is him this is really him. This is his real loving presence. You know, oh, you know, I should say, my God, it is him. Then, of course, um, it is my God and it is him. And, he, and I'm receiving him by his will and his love. And it is transforming me. And that makes all the difference. So, I mean, those are some tricks anyway. Well, that's I a would great image, really. That's a great connection yeah. that you made there yeah. in that image. I hadn't yeah. really thought about that until you just said it. Yeah. But it makes a lot of sense. And that's why, in some ways, Eucharistic devotion is so important as well. And obviously, Mother Angelica yeah. is a big supporter of that. And you talk about that. You say, as believers gather in adoration, their faith awakens Jesus' real prison presence within their own hearts. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's something about, you know, sometimes, you know, you can go into adoration, right? And if you're anything like me, you probably have 50 things on your brain. And, of course, and, and in your heart and in your soul and on your mind. And so, of course, you're... But there's something focusing mm -hmm. about that presence, you know, of the Eucharist. I can't see it now, but I can almost have a sense of empathy with the Eucharist that is there. Mm. And, um, you know, I've had, uh, you know, I don't have it all the time, um, you know, when I go to adoration or when I just even go to, I have a little chapel at my house, you know, the mm. chapel, um, the, the sacrament chapel mm. that's there. Sometimes I do get that sense of being focused from outside of myself on this presence, this loving presence that's there. But the person who, you know, the, that really had it was St. John Paul the Great. You know, that great story of, you know, every time he would pass by a, a chapel, you know, he would say, oh, I got to stop in here for a minute. Mm -hmm. Well, he's turned into 20 minutes and then they got off schedule. So his scheduler, I forget what his name was, Italian fellow. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, he, uh, he says, he looks and he sees this chapel uh, when John Paul comes to do the, um, his masses in Philadelphia, right? So he says, oh, shut that chapel door, you know, because he says, if he goes by this, we'll be 20 minutes late. So, of course, uh, you know, um, John Paul II, you know, he had a little rest after his plane, you know, his land. So he comes out of his room and he's going down the corridor and he passes that door. And then he looks over at his uh, Italian scheduler <laughs> and he wags his finger at him and he goes, no, 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 no. And he goes into that chapter and up, it's the chapel. And he goes in there and spends 20 minutes and they get off schedule. But anyway, I mean, that's, you know, he had that same empathy, you know, right. that same, uh, I'm passing by the beloved. Right. This sense. And so I'm going, right. exactly, sense. a sense. And you have it as Catholic, so, you go into a church <laughs> with the Blessed Sacraments there, yep. and you can feel it, and, and you can go to some other denominational you know, churches and stuff, yeah. and you go, and it's just nice, but there's something missing. Not there. Yeah, yep. it's not there. It's just not there's there. something definitely not there. The Beloved's, uh, you know, right. exuding presence is right. not there yeah, on the same level. Yeah, and it's palpable, you can feel Absolutely. it. Absolutely. With that said, if you yeah. can, uh, wrap us up for this week with your blessing, oh. that would be great. Uh, absolutely. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord who has come to us in the Holy Eucharist, the Lord who has come to us in our self-consciousness, the Lord who comes to us in his beautiful providence, protecting, inspiring, and guiding us through his spirit, may that Lord bless you, guide you, and fill you with his love so that you might follow him into the fullness of that kingdom and lead others to do so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. As always, Father Spitzer, be well. We shall see you next week, and we hope to see all of you next week as well. Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are all available through our catalog, of course. Next week, we'll continue talking about the Holy Eucharist and answering your questions. And I've got a special interview coming up that Andreas Tornhauser did. He's speaking with Robert Cardinal Seurat about his book, Catechism of the Spiritual Life. So it's a special bookmark presentation, a very interesting book interview done in Rome. Check it out. 
And also, the Archdiocese for the Military Services Memorial Mass celebrated the Basilica National Sign of Immaculate Conception by the Most Reverend Timothy Brolio, Archbishop for the Military Services USA, good man, Monday, May 29th at 11 a.m. Eastern, EW10 always supports and remembers our veterans and those who've served our nation and all nations around the world. Thank you so much. I'm Doug Keck. We'll see you next time in Father Spitzer's Universe.